All right. Amen. Nice to see you. How's everybody doing? Happy New Year to you. Well, hey, uh, hopefully uh, you received some message notes when you came in. You're going to want to grab those message notes. Uh, hopefully you have a, a Bible um, as we are going to be digging in to that together. But as we start this morning, we are going to play a very simple word association game. And so here's the way this game is going to work. I am going to tell you the name of a company or the name of a brand, and then you just have to tell me in one word, what does that company produce? What is their product? What do they make? And I'm not trying to trick anybody. It's very simple. Everybody can play. Uh, It goes like this. I simply say, for instance, with one word, what is the product of Nike? Shoes. Yeah, and some clothes too, but yeah, some people just have to be oppositional, don't they, Steve Steele? So, um, (laughs) uh, all right, uh, how about Toyota? Cars and trucks, I get it, cars and trucks, all right. Um, Rolex, what does Rolex make? Watches, yeah, I've never had one, don't think I ever will, barely ever seen one, but uh, that's what they make. All right, so you're really good at this game. So I'm going to get it a little tougher, same deal, only one word, Uh, don't look ahead in your notes for the answer to this, what product does the church produce? I like where you guys are heads at. It's a little smaller uh, response there. Um, But I want to suggest today, and not just today, but throughout this year, that if you look at the model of Jesus, the product that the church should be producing, should be making, is in fact disciples, as some of you shouted out. Even when Jesus comes to the very end of his life, and he's going to tell his church, this is what I want you to do from this point forward. In Matthew 28, he says like this. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Everywhere you go, make disciples. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the word Christian does appear in the Bible, but the word Christian is only in the Bible three times. The word disciple appears 269 times. That should tell us a little something about the importance of this concept of discipleship. In fact, uh, author Dallas Willard, who's written quite a bit on this topic, says this. Says the New Testament is a book about disciples, written by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. Yet, you could make the case that for a while now, churches have often got this kind of twisted around. And instead of producing disciples, they become a little more concerned with producing uh, church attenders or uh, consumers of Christian content or Christian experiences. Uh, Yet I want to suggest that if you look at the life of Jesus, and if you study the Gospels, which I really hope that we are going to do together over these 90 days, you are going to see a whole different priority in Jesus for what they produce. Jesus is all about producing people that know him, that follow him, and that carry on his mission. He calls these his disciples, and that's what Jesus is committed uh, to making. And it always begins with an invitation to follow. In fact, as you think about that, let's take a little look at this video. Follow me. You as well. Yes, you, James and John, come, 
Follow me. He said he was building a kingdom. A fortress stronger than stone. I believed him. Join me. And I will show you a new way to count and measure. A different way of seeing time. Matthew, son of Alpheus, follow me. It's a very short message. Only two words. Mine is also short. Follow I me. I will. I saw you. Under the fig tree. Rabba. There it is. Without my secret dagger, why do you need someone like me? I have everything I need. But I wanted you. Will you praise God? Every day. Well, in that case, Judas, follow me. Well, that's just some of the times that Jesus initiates that relationship with his disciples with the invitation to follow him. Now, as I think about my about 30 years uh, in ministry, uh, as I said, churches can often get this twisted around. And over those years, I would say one of the primary ways that churches measure their success is they look at three things. And they say a, a church is successful based on bodies, bucks, and buildings. So in other words, you know that you're doing a good job of, of a, at a church if a lot of people show up to your events and to your services, and if you have a big budget and are doing those things, and if you have a buildings. But what I'm saying is Jesus gives us this whole different priority. And it's all about this idea of following after him. And so this year, throughout 2024, our theme is going to be all about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and to follow him? So if you're new here, uh, in, uh, it's been about, I think, seven or eight years now that we've been looking at an annual theme for the year. So kind of a preaching theme. And the idea was we wanted to be very intentional about working our way through all of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, all of the key books and key themes of the Bible. And so we set out to do kind of an intentional walkthrough uh, of the core uh, theologies and, and Bible passages uh, of, the, of, of the Christian faith. And so we started way back in 2017, and our theme that year was all about who is God. And so we spent time in the book of Genesis and in the book of Exodus looking at the nature and the character of who God is. Classically, this is what is called theology, the study of God. Then the next year in 2018, we said, well, if this is who God is, the next question is, who are we? What are, what, are, what are people? And so the question is, who am I? It was all about identity. We spent a lot of time in the book of Ephesus. We studied the book of Joshua. And one of the things we saw time and time again is that we should not define ourselves in the way that the world defines our identity, but we should see ourselves as God sees us first and foremost as children of God. That was 2018. 2019, our theme was the incomparable Christ. We fixed our eyes on Jesus as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. When you study Christ, theologians call this Christology. And so we spent a year on the incomparable Christ. In 2020, our theme was we, the church. And wow, were we going to need that in 2020? Because I don't know if you remember 2020, but we started out by saying, hey, the church is not a building that you go to, and the church is not a service that you attend. The church is a movement of Jesus's followers. The church is a family. Well, we had no idea at the start of the year that that was going to be put to the test when church began to look very differently as we studied ecclesiology, is what's that called, the study of the church during the middle of a global pandemic. And, and it stretched us, and it was difficult. 
difficult, but, but in many ways, it was foundational for us to recognize it's not only about the place that we meet and the, the gatherings, but it's about this movement of God's people. And, and you guys really shown in that year in just an amazing way. 2021, our theme was We Believe. It's called Pistology or the Study of Faith. And we looked at not only the core doctrines, like what are the foundational doctrines that we believe, but also what does it mean to be people of faith. In 2022, our theme was Made for This. And we said time and time again that we are made by God and for God. And the world is not going to make sense until you figure that out. Because otherwise, you're just cruising through life when God created us for so much more. God created us for a mission. And so we said, what does it mean to live on mission or missiology? Uh, Then last year, uh, hopefully you remember, because that was just last week, we finished up a whole year um, on the Holy Spirit um, and what it means to be people that are led, filled, and uh, walking in the Spirit. And so this year, I am so excited, and I actually believe so strongly that God has directed us as a church to this theme about discipleship and what does it mean to follow Him. This idea of discipleship was so central to not only who Jesus was, but what Jesus' mission was all about. In fact, as I've thought about this, I believe that it's not a mistake that God became a man in the time and in the season and in the place that Jesus did. In first century Jewish culture, there was actually a great emphasis on this idea of discipleship. Now, as modern Americans, it will often feel very foreign to us because we're separated by 2,000 years and a a world apart. And so this first century Jewish model of calling people to follow after them and making disciples is just foreign to us. We tend to think more kind of linear and and education-based. So we think about a, a teacher and a student. And the goal of the the teacher is to pass on information or knowledge so that the student can take the, the test. And that's kind of the way things work in our culture. But in the culture of Jesus, the word for disciple is beautiful Hebrew word. It's the word Talmud. Uh, the, the, the plural is Talmudim. Say that with me. Talmudim. Talmudim, that's what the, the disciples are called, the plural of disciples. And the idea behind the Talmudim is this. Different than in our American culture where a student is interested in knowing mostly what the teacher knows, in the model of discipleship, it's more about becoming like the teacher, doing the things the teacher did, being a person who is like the teacher. So in Jesus's day, there was a, a specific uh, education system for Jewish kids at that time. In fact, some of these words you still see in, in synagogues, modern synagogues still today. Uh, but it started with kids as young as five and six, and pretty much everybody of those little kids went to what was called Beit Sefer. Beit Sefer was kind of elementary school, and it literally means the house of the book because the curriculum of Beit Sefer was all about what we call the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. And they, not only the rabbi, the local rabbi would teach these kids, not only the stories, but God's relationship to the people. And they would come through Beit Sefer, the the house of the book, about maybe 12, 11, 13 years old. And they would literally have the, the first five books of the Bible memorized. Could you imagine that? All first five books of the Bible memorized. But here's the thing. Not everybody who completed Beit Sefer became a disciple. 
In fact, for the vast majority of the people, that was the end of their formal education. And little girls at that time began to turn their attention to making a home or starting a family, getting married. And the boys began to turn their attention to to learning the family trade, to apprentice in something. So for instance, Jesus had a father who was a carpenter. And so Jesus learned the, the family trade of carpentry or stonework or something like that. Now, some of those students who came through Beit Sefer kind of really took to it, and they loved it, and they did really well, and so the rabbi might invite them to go to the next step, which was called Beit Talmud. Not everybody went to this. In fact, only a minority of people did, but there in Beit Talmud, the study wasn't just the first five books of the Bible, but it was all the rest of the Old Testament, all of the law, and all of the prophets, along with not only memorizing all of the Old Testament, there's what they would call Beit Midrash, which is where they studied the interpretations and the applications and what different rabbis taught about different texts and stuff like that. And they would come through that at whatever, 15, 16 years old, and they would have the Old Testament memorized, if you could imagine that. Could you imagine? But not everybody who came through Beit Midrash or Beit Talmud was considered a disciple. There was a next step. And it came when a rabbi saw something in a person, saw potential, saw promise, and they went to that person and they said, follow me. Would you like to follow me? And then they could begin to become a disciple of that rabbi. And just like in kind of our modern American colleges, the most prestigious rabbis would find the best and the brightest, and they would go after them, and they would say, come be my Talmudim, and they would build their discipleship uh, school like that. All right? Um, The historian Ray Vanderland says this about the disciples. He says, once they're invited by their rabbi to be with him, to become like him, to start to do the things that the rabbi does, the best compliment that could be paid of a disciple was this. They followed so closely that they were covered in the dust of their rabbi. And you can imagine how that came about. The idea was you're following after this rabbi. You're going everywhere that they goes and he, he goes. And so you become so close to that person that, that he's kicking up dust and you start to be covered with it. And I know that I'm close to my rabbi because I'm covered in his dust. What if we got to the end of 2024 and people look at this church and say, man, those are people that are covered with the dust of their rabbi. So Jesus was a rabbi. Now, like all things, or not all things, but oftentimes Jesus also did things in a very unconventional way. So Jesus, when he turned 30, which was the age that you would begin to, if you were a rabbi, call people to be your disciples, Jesus goes looking for his disciples, but he doesn't go to the Beit Talmud, he doesn't go to the Beit Midrash. Where does he go? He starts to go to these little towns and villages along the Sea of Galilee. He's not looking for the best and the brightest. Instead, he goes to a place that's populated with a group of people that didn't get invited to be disciples from some other rabbi. They probably didn't go on to other schools. He looks at this place as places like Bethsaida and Capernaum, and there he starts to call his disciples by saying, hey, you, come and follow me. That brings us to the passage that we want to study today, a very important foundational passage on the calling of disciples in John chapter 1. So we're going to begin in John chapter 1, verse 35. Uh, I invite you to open up your Bible and follow along. At this point in John 1, John, the author of the book and disciple, has been talking about John the Baptist, different Johns. And John the Baptist has been starting to actually gain some followers himself, um, but he also is called to point people 
to Jesus. And that's where we pick it up with John the Baptist in verse 35 where it says this, the next day John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. So two guys that were following John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Actually, just a few verses earlier, uh, John had said it like this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the guy that's passing by right now. So he says to his disciples, look, there's the Lamb of God. When the two disciples that were following John heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him and it was about four in the afternoon. Well, I love that, but it's kind of this strange interaction that Jesus has with these two disciples because they'd been disciples of John and then just like in a, a verse or two, they switch and they start to become followers of Jesus. And if you read that without kind of really thinking what's going on, it, you just say, well, that's the way it went. But, but what would lead them to go from here to there like that? There must have been something about Jesus that was drawing them to him, right? Now, of course, John points out, hey, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but maybe there's even something more than that. In fact, John chapter 1, it's actually a really important book or important chapter for not only understanding John, but so much of the New Testament and developing what we call that Christology. Because in John chapter 1, there is so much about who Jesus is from the very beginning. You're going to see it in your reading um, this week. Because in John chapter 1, uh, to this point, we've already seen that Jesus has been called the Word that became flesh, right? The, the Logos that took on flesh. Steve did a great job uh, preaching on that on Christmas. Uh, we talked about Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, John tells us he's the pre-existent creator. He's one with the Father. Jesus is called the rabbi, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even unworthy, worthy to tie his sandals. I, I can't even do that. So from the start, there is something different about Jesus. And these guys see it. And so they're like these starstruck fans that they're like, all, uh, hey, Jesus, where are you staying? Kind of a funny question. Have you ever met someone famous or like someone that you kind of really look up to and you, you don't know what to say to them, so you say something kind of dumb and clumsy? That's kind of how I feel like it's here. They're like, there's the Lamb of God. Uh, hey, Jesus, where, where are you staying, right? But Jesus is gracious and he says to them, come and see. Come and see. Come see where I'm staying. But even more than that, come and, and see me. Let's begin to get to know one another and let's begin to spend um, time together. In fact, the idea of uh, when someone's invited uh, to come and see, it's a, an invitation to not only come and see, but also to spend time with him. Because as with any relationship, any relationship is going to grow stronger as you spend time together, right? There's nothing that can replace time spent together. And in fact, it's kind of fascinating if you fast forward in some of these disciples that Jesus calls, and right here in John chapter 1, uh, if you fast forward years later, 
after Jesus has done all his miracles, done all his teaching, gone to the cross, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, he tells his disciples, who, you know, were, who were, he's just meeting here, now it's your turn to make disciples. And in Acts chapter 4, there's this really cool story about Peter, who we're just about to meet, and John, the other disciple. And this is what it says. It says, after uh, they, they come across a guy who's who's paralyzed, and they heal this, this man who's paralyzed. And then they preach this message, and all these people start to become followers of Jesus. And the, uh, the authorities of that area are blown away because they don't understand it. And in Acts 4, this is what they said. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were what? Unschooled. And these unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished and they took note of what? That these men had been with Jesus. It's almost as if these authorities look at them and they're like, these fishermen, this guy's barely finished Bates Affair, and now they're fishermen, and they're doing these things. How could they do that? Oh, yeah, they spent time with Jesus. That's the way they identify them as people who had spent time with Jesus. That is why step one in the disciple's journey is an invitation to be with Jesus. That's why for these first 90 days of 2024, you're going to hear us talking about it time and time again, we are challenging and encouraging and inviting everybody to spend that time by reading through the Gospels over 90 days. So we put together this system. It's a chronological uh, order, and so you're going to read a little bit from, from the different books each day. There's actually 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and we are going to read through these. And on Easter Sunday is going to be the 90th day, March 31st. We are going to have finished reading those. And we do that because there's no better way to get to know Jesus than to, 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 to spend that time with him. How do we know him but to, to read the stories about him? to see what people thought about him, to, to see the, the miracles, to see the, the teachings that he did, and to spend time with Jesus. Because if you want to know someone, there is no substitute for being with them. And the way of becoming a disciple of things, or we have, we have a way, I should say, we have a way of becoming disciples of the things that we spend time with. So in other words, think about this. If you say, hey, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, and I spend five, maybe ten minutes a day reading over the Bible, and then I spend hours a day watching Netflix or pouring over cable news or my favorite podcast or my favorite talk show, who am I a disciple of at that point, right? You're a disciple of who you spend time and give your mind and your heart to. If you say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, and so I'm going to go to church for an hour and 15 minutes a week, that's great. Um, but then, you know, I spend hours just scrolling through TikTok or social media. And again, the question becomes, who am I a disciple of? You only can become a disciple of someone if you spend time with them. That's how you get the dust of the rabbi on us. And, and so here in 2024, we chose this on purpose. This is a year that is full, sure to be full of great division and strife and difficulties. There's going to be political ideologies, political people calling out for us to follow after them. And that's all fine. But all of the noise, all of the noise is going to be calling out for us. And Jesus is often with a still small voice. 
And are we going to be willing to cut through the noise and say, first and foremost, before I'm a disciple of anything else, any other ideology, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. He invites us to follow him, and that begins by being with him and spending time with him. So I'm super excited about these 90 days, um, and I hope that you are off to a good start um, in that. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, it goes on in verse 40, where it says this, Andrew, who was one of these disciples of John, who now starts to follow after Jesus, Andrew was also Simon Peter's brother, and he was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. First of all, what a hero Andrew is in this story. He's never going to be as famous or as influential as his brother uh, Simon Peter, but Peter never would have become Peter without Andrew doing what Andrew did. And, and Andrew, from the very beginning, recognizes that when you start to follow Jesus, one of the things that you do is, is you tell other people and you invite them to come and see. So he invites his brother, Simon, to come. And in verse 42, it says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And I love that scene because it introduces in such a powerful way the second part of this whole discipleship journey, which is the discipleship journey is a call to become like Jesus. From their very first meeting, right? First time Jesus meets Simon, what does he say to him? He says, Simon, I see something more in you. I see something more than who you are now. I see something more than who you've been in your past. And so I'm going to give you a new name. I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you this new name, Cephas or Peter. It means the rock. Because Peter, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. And you are going to become a whole new person with a whole new name. Now, if you think about it, Jesus invites Peter to come and be who he created him to be, right? Because Jesus sees more in us than than we see in ourselves. So he's always calling us up to more. Now for Peter, like most of us, it was not always a smooth and and easy journey. For a lot of times for Peter, it was two steps forward and one step back. In fact, the classic picture of this is Peter when he's in the boat uh, with the other disciples and Jesus comes walking out on the water toward the disciples. And Peter sees this and is full of faith. And he says, hey, if he can walk on water, I want to be like him. I'm going to walk on water. So Peter steps out of the boat and he begins to walk on water. And that's great until all of a sudden he looks around, takes his eyes off Jesus, sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. But the reality is, isn't that the way so much of our life is? Our, our walk with God, for many of us, it's like that. We maybe make a few changes here and there. We do well for a little bit. We see some victory. But then we kind of get distracted by this and that. We take our eyes off Christ. And because our old nature is still so much a part of us, before long we find ourselves sinking and that old na- rather than that, that old nature becoming a new nature. So I've seen a, like an example of this in our house this last week. And uh, it's kind of a strange story, but um, our cat, okay, Janny's cat, um, <laughs> had an injury. And uh, our, this cat got a, 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 
a splinter in its tail. And so we couldn't get the splinter out, and so we decided, well, this poor cat's suffering, so we need to take the cat to the vet. So we take the cat to the vet, and they take the splinter out. Um, but while they were doing that, they shaved the tail around there. So he's got this tail, and then he's got this shave spot, and then he's got this little puff of fur on the end. Yeah, it sounds funny until all night long, this cat becomes terrified of its tail. And... <laughs> Yes, so he's like hissing at it, he's like attacking at it, and then, I mean, he's like chasing it around. I think we even have some pictures of it there. Look at that, yeah. I'm going to chase after that. And then he takes off running to get away from the tail, which shows you how smart this cat really is because you can't get away from the tail because it's a part of you. It goes with you. And so I've been watching this thing, and I think, you know what, I think sometimes that's the way I am in my relationship with God. And I see things in my life that kind of bug me, and I want to get rid of, and so I hiss at them, and I swat at them, and maybe I even try to run away, but I look around, and they're right there with me. They're following me around because they're a part of my old nature. One of the things of being a true disciple of Jesus, and you see this in guys like Peter and so many others, is that they begin to become completely new. The old is gone. The new has come. And in fact, one of the great lessons that we're going to learn throughout this year is that Jesus didn't come to like give us a few tips and tricks to become a, you know, a little better person or to, you know, kind of get a little spiritual growth. That's all fine and good. But Jesus didn't come from that, for that. Jesus came not to just make us a little better person. He came to make us a brand new person. He, became, he came so that we could see what it means to become like Jesus. Honestly, to me, this is the most exciting part of this study because this is where the real work takes place. It's the most exciting part, but it's also the most scary part. Because to become like Jesus, that means that there are some areas of our life that he's going to have to chip away. He's going to have to get rid of those things. And how great would it be if we got to the end of 2024 and we look different? And that anger that seems to just be like a tail chasing me around, or that lust, or that greed or that selfishness, or that insecurity, or whatever it is that chases us around, and we kind of deal with it kind of from a sin management kind of perspective, what if we got to the end and we see that from the inside out, Jesus has actually transformed us, and suddenly those things, it's not that they're completely gone, but we're a new person in those things. And so I am so excited about this part of 2024 as we dig into what it means to become like Jesus and let him change even our character. But that's not the end of the story. Because in verse 43, it goes on and it says this, The next day, after all that, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. There it is, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now the town Bethsaida, the literal translation of Bethsaida is house of fish. House of fish. So again, it's not like he's going to the big metropolises or these big fancy places. He goes to the house of fish. And there, uh, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael's response is, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. So just to tell you how small Nazareth was, the guy from House of Fish is now making fun of Nazareth, right? So Nazareth was not that impressive. So Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from that? Come and see, 
said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I I told you I saw you under that fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So again, I love that, that interaction because we see in this the third part of the invitation to discipleship, which is not only come and, and be with him, spend time with him, not only start to become like him, but eventually to become, to do the things that Jesus did. And Jesus is inviting his disciples into that. Become so covered in the dust of your rabbi that you start to do the things that Jesus did. Now, the first part of the story in this interaction between Jesus and Nathanael has always seemed really strange to me because Nathanael's response, if you really think it through, is very extreme because he goes from making fun of Nazareth, right, and being full of doubt, and he's very skeptical, which, you know, is a natural response for people when someone says, hey, here's the Messiah. He's skeptical about it. But almost right away after Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, he goes to, surely you are the son of God, the king of Israel, and all these things. So again, it makes you imagine that something must have happened there. There must be something more than even we could see that was going on with Nathaniel. Because let's just say that we've never met before, and uh, you come to church, and I'm like, uh, introduce myself, and I say, hey, yeah, I say, I, I know you, I saw you at the grocery store in the produce aisle. You might say, well, hey, that's a pretty good memory you've got there. Or you might say, why are you watching me pick out vegetables, you creepy guy? Um, But you probably wouldn't drop to your knees and say, surely you are the king of Lodi or something like that. That's... That's, that would be a, kind of an extreme response. So what's going on with Nathaniel that Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, surely you are the son of God. Unless there was something more that was happening under the fig tree. And it made me think, it's actually not original to me, you're going to see where it comes from, because um, I'm speculating a little bit, but what if Jesus saw something in Nathaniel that was so private, was so deep, was so important to him, that only God could know it. What, what if he saw something like that? And what if Jesus knew everything about Nathaniel and still loved him? Because I love the way that the, the Chosen, the TV show, deals with this. They introduce Nathaniel, and Nathaniel, if I'm not mistaken, is like an, an architect. And he's been spending a lot of his life working on this project to build this synagogue that he's very proud of, and it's going to be like his offering to God. And so he spends like years of his life leading up to, the, to this thing. But then things go sideways. He kind of gets cheated out. He gets passed over, and he's, it's, his dream is, is crushed. And not only is his dream crushed, but he doesn't know what he's going to do. He thinks, God, how could this happen to me? And so he starts to have this deep crisis of faith. And he feels alone and he doesn't know where to go. And so he ends up underneath this fig tree having this argument with God. And this is what it looks like. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe.
Hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Do not hide your face from me. Do you see me? Do you see me? Rabbi. Well, this is a good night. Do you know who stands beside you there? This is my friend, Nathaniel. Yes, the truth teller. I'm sorry? Man is often deceitful. And Israel began with Jacob, a bit of a deceiver, yes? Yes. But one of the great things about you is you are a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What did you say about me? What is this? How do you know me? I have known you long before Philip called you to come and see. Don't look at him, look at me. When you were in your lowest moment, and you were alone, I did not turn my face from you. I saw you. Under the fig tree. Rabbi. There it is. You are the son of God. The king of Israel. <laughs> I knew it. Well, that didn't take long. <laughs> doesn't mess around. Love that. Hey, do you have a fig tree? Do you have something that represents your deepest hurts, your deepest shame, your lifelong struggles? What if Jesus were to say to you, I saw you there and I did not turn my face away from you. My face was turned towards you even in that time. What if there was a savior who knew everything about you? knew your strengths, knew your weaknesses, knew your sins, knew your secrets, knew all the stuff, and still said, follow me. Because that's what Jesus does. And for Nathaniel, that's the beginning of this whole new thing. 
right? In fact, there's kind of this strange conversation that Jesus has with him, and he says, Nathaniel, if you follow me, get ready. You're going to see all kinds of stuff that you can't even imagine. Jesus says, it's, it's like you're going to see heaven open up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of, of, of Man. It's, it's probably a reference of Jesus to the, the Old Testament story of Jacob, where Jacob sees angels coming and going on this stairway of, of heaven, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, come and follow me, and you're going to see a whole new way for people to know God and to be in relationship with God, and you can be a part of it. Come and follow me. Now, if you think about it, what's crazy to me is we know the end of the story. We've been around long enough that we know the miracles that Jesus did, the teaching he did. We know that this guy from Nazareth that they're going to make fun of, this rabbi from Nazareth, ultimately is going to become the central person in all of human history, right? So we know that stuff. So we're like, oh, if Jesus says, follow him, Nathaniel, go for it. You should do it. But at the time, Peter and Andrew and, and Philip and Nathaniel, they had no idea what was ahead of them. All they knew is what they saw in Jesus, and it compelled them to come. And here at the start of 2024, let's be honest, we have no idea what this year is going to hold. We have no idea the good and the bad things. There's certainly going to be blessings among this church family. There are going to be challenges. There are going to be life and death and struggle in 2024. But whatever it is, Jesus' invitation is still the same. Come and follow me. Be with me through this. The only question at this point now is, will we follow? The so what of this is very simple. Do you hear Jesus' voice and are you willing to say, yes, I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you even more. The, the, the person that you are, I want to become like that. The things that you did, Jesus, I want to pledge my life to do those things. In fact, I want to follow so closely that I would be covered in the dust of my rabbi. Father, I thank you so much. For your wise plan, this first century crazy Jewish model of raising up disciples that become like their teacher, Father, would that be our heart? And so I thank you here at the start of 2024 that we hear loud and clear your invitation to come and follow you. So I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for this church family, Father, that you would do amazing things in the year ahead. We don't know what this year holds, but we know, Lord, if we go with you, we are in good hands. And so, Father, as a church, we commit to follow you, to be your disciples. And we pledge this together and we say together, amen.